0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 7, Far Fucking Out. Hitting the road for a commune in Northwest Arkansas. We were headed off to Northwest Arkansas to investigate a commune that Paul and Diana had read about in Mother Jones magazine. It was a ridiculous notion to believe that Diana could live on a real hippie commune with her tendency towards the I rather than the we. But Paul was the kind of husband who indulged in the dreams of his idealistic wife, crazy as they may be. The road to the Ozarks was littered with dead armorillos and happy hippie refugees, and we collected hitchhikers as frequently as we did dead bugs splattered on the nighttime windshield of the bus. The carousel of new faces turned every hundred miles, helping to pass the long sweltering hours of road trip boredom. We met a lot of people, but there was only one fellow who made a lasting impression on me. He was the moocher type of hippie, whose favorite expression was far fucking out. I could smell the sense of entitlement reeking off his fat, hairy body as he ate more of our food than I was ever allowed. He and his black, tar-stained feet traveled all the way to Fayetteville with us, and when we stopped at a respite house in Arkansas, he took a bath with the door wide open. I saw him sitting in the muddy water, and when he finished, he wrapped a nice clean towel around his pudgy body and walked around on what were still the dirtiest feet I had ever seen. True to the transient nature of the hippies, he was gone before I could wash the image of him out of my mind. The commune that we visited was on a farm set way back in the woods of the Boston Mountains. There was one big communal house and several small shacks scattered around the property between tall pines and garden beds, brightly colored buses and dilapidated cars filled out the landscape. We parked our green tank and went inside the big house to meet the members of the community. We hung out in the kitchen, mostly with the women. There were lots of children running around gleefully with an oblivious sense of freedom and an overabundance of self-confidence. These were real hippie kids, and I suspected that none of them ever got punished. I was hoping we would stay because it felt good here. The vibe was mellow, yet lively with activity. I could feel the all embracing hippie love hug, and I knew this is where I belonged. Handsome, long haired men in cutoffs would float in and out of the kitchen, carrying guitars, smoking pipes, and perching for a while on the kitchen counter. The women were very sweet and motherly, and their kitchen smelled like fresh herbs and good health. But it was obvious that the women didn't care much for Diana. She had a way of sucking the air out of the room and putting everyone on guard. This would have been a good place for my family, but much to my chagrin, the mutual consensus was that we would not be living on the commune. We went back to Fayetteville and settled into a new house and a new southern existence. Paul and Diana made friends with a man named Gorton Hitt who owned a restaurant called The Way It Is. He let them use the bakery to launch a business selling homemade granola and muffins. And soon enough, his generosity expanded to use of the restaurant on Sunday nights for an authentic Italian dinner. Paul and Diana were both talented in the kitchen, and they would cook up their secret spaghetti sauce and serve large plates of pasta and vegetables for a cheap price. For a while, we had a small family business, and we were all given chores to do during this weekly epicurean event. In hindsight, this was the only job I ever knew my mother to have. Truth be told, I didn't know my family very well. In Sacramento, my mother had employed a new kind of punishment which must have been much less strenuous for her than the beatings. She would send me to my room, not for hours but for days, and being excluded from the family for such long periods would keep me unacquainted and oblivious. My siblings relished their role as the know-it-alls of the family and enjoyed rubbing this new power in my face. I was too proud to give them the satisfaction they were looking for, so I pretended that I didn't care, or that I actually did know who did what with whom, when, and where. In Fayetteville, the room to which I was exiled was an attic, and I was up there for about two weeks in the summer, right before I turned eight years old. It was cramped, sweltering hot, and full of sun-slivered shadows that were so quiet, my loneliness became amplified by the muffled sounds of people living freely outside on the streets below. Lying on the floor was an old sheet of newspaper that I read over and over, hoping each time that something new would appear on the page. There was a small window that looked out onto the house next door. I bent down on my crooked knees and spent hours looking into the neighbor's window. Every day I watched a bookshelf that was made out of an old ladder. Nothing ever moved and everything always remained the same. But my eyes were so desperate for a change of scenery that I watched and waited every day for something that never happened. Like my little brother Tony, I was a restless and fidgety child. Add to that my talkative nature, and this solitary confinement was nothing more than a stroke of genius concocted by my captor, my mother. The long hours of nothingness passed with excruciating pain, and the only way to survive was to create another world inside my mind. The new world that I created was underground, protected from the suffocating southern heat, My favorite moments in the fantasy were the first few steps I took, slowly descending through a hole in the ground, which was in our backyard and hidden by leaves. The only way to truly pass the time was to focus on the tiniest of details. I didn't create people as much as I did working systems. In my underground city, we drove around in little carts, and everyone had their own cozy, carved-out caves, which I designed and decorated. The members of my new society were mostly children, though there were a few very nice grown-ups that roamed around, mostly powerless, because it was the kids who had all the control. I tried to keep my dream world exciting, but the details eventually became worn out and tedious. One of the hardest parts was trying to keep the real-world temperature of the addict out of my imagination. It took a lot of mind power to will it away, and soon even this fantasy land became saturated with the stifling heat and caustic boredom of my punishment. It was always awkward for the family when I was released from the room. No one, including me, knew how to act. We all walked on eggshells, and it took a while for my sisters and brothers to warm up to me. I could tell they felt obligated to treat me as a paroled convict or someone relegated to the bottom of the pecking order. Paul never said a word. I don't think he dared. He wasn't confrontational, so like the rest of us, he was probably afraid of Diana. As a stepfather, his attitude towards me was sheepish and quiet because he knew what I knew at eight years old. He was a complacent fraud with dirt on his hands and basically a weenie. Even though he never lifted a finger to rescue me from my insane punishments, I sensed his truth and felt a bit sorry for him. In the unspoken language of justice, I can only imagine that his thoughts were, "'I wished I'd never met your mom. It's not right, but I can't do anything. I'm not your real dad.'" Diana never seemed bothered by her cruelty. She just wasn't that kind of a mother. When I'd slink back to the family, she acted proud like she'd done a good thing, made a good decision, and my only greeting from her was a menacing look or an outright threat. One wrong move, kid, and you're back up there indefinitely, and this time with a beating. I just pretended like nothing ever happened and kept my emotions to myself. It was safer that way. After my stint in the attic, Diana and her sisters left for a trip to Italy. This was good, really good. You could feel the great big sigh of relief in all of us. And for the entire time she was away, we were nothing but normal. Paul spoiled us with this normalcy, and we became regular children, navigating the chipper mayhem of childhood. When Diana returned from Italy, she was happy, relaxed, and congenial. This was incredibly unnerving, because her happiness was just as manic as her misery. Her travel high lasted for a couple of days, and we all waited with bated breath for it to wear off. When she finally came down, she remembered what none of us could forget. She hated her husband, her kids, and her life. Like clockwork, when Diana got crazy, the wheels on the bus got rolling. Paul put the names of some states into a hat, and one of us kids picked out our next destination, Massachusetts. Once we hit the road, I don't think we were hippies anymore. We were back to being a working-class family from Cleveland, roaming around the country, trying to quell an insatiably restless and mentally disturbed woman.